Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Dr. Starlin? I'm doing great, Sarah. Thanks for asking. It's a holiday week, which is always uh, an exciting week. It is. I'm excited for a couple days off. Yeah, a few days off is nice. Thanksgiving, I think, is also one of those holidays where it isn't completely around buying presents and giving presents and everything else. It's kind of just a time to hang out with friends and family, enjoy each other, maybe eat, drink, watch some football. It's, it's a good weekend, I think. It is. But just remember, if you're going out with your family to stay protected because COVID is still a thing, so it definitely get vaccinated, all of that stuff. Definitely <laughs> is. And we're actually seeing influenza in our area, and I assume other parts of the country are as well, which leads to our guest for today. Hi, yeah, guys. I have to be honest, I'm, I am having a nerdy fangirl moment a little bit talking to Dr. Matt Donahue, uh, who is an epidemiologist. I love listening to you speak. I'm on all of the, you know, community calls that we're on and you're just a great speaker and epidemiology has always fascinated me. So I'm excited well, to it, have you on. It, it certainly fascinated me too. Appreciate you saying that. Um, and I guess that's how I got here today as acting state epidemiologist. Um, I, I, I got to say, I am very thankful for Thanksgiving this year while we're on that subject before we keep going, because I think this year I'm getting both Thursday and Friday off. Last year, we're at this, this peak in the middle of our uh, biggest November surge, and there was no way we, we weren't working through that. And before that, I was in internal medicine, and holiday day offs weren't a thing. But I think this year, I'm going to get both Thursday and Friday, and I'm so excited to have both of them off. That's awesome. That is is exciting. That is exciting. You know, I'm debating. I might have to do a little work on Friday. We'll see. But, you know, around these parts, we have to watch the Iowa-Nebraska game. I don't know if you've uh, indoctrinated yourself into that rivalry as of yet. But um, as you guys have all guessed, Dr. Donahue is our guest today. Um, Matt, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself just quickly, if you could, for our guests, for our audience. Excuse me. Yeah, happy to, everybody. I'm uh, Matthew Donahue. I'm an internal medicine physician. Uh, and acting state epidemiologist for the state of Nebraska. Glad to be here with you. We are so excited to have you, and you are the first epidemiologist we've had on the show. So would you like to explain to everybody out there what exactly you do in that role? Ah, I would love to. So what is epidemiology? I think uh, the general population is more familiar now with epidemiology than they've ever been in the past. Nothing puts a spotlight on public health and epidemiology quite like a uh, global pandemic. So epidemiology is, in its simplest, looking at a numerator and a denominator and seeing what that numerator and denominator do over time. So it's the, I think of it as the effector arm of public health. So we, we look at that link between individual diseases and the population we detect those changes and trends in the numerator and the denominator over time. And then my favorite part of epi is the applied epidemiology part. And that's taking the identification of that trend, 
and applying an intervention or a change. Um, that's what epidemiology does. And I, I enjoy that very much. We've had plenty of time to um, be able to play at epidemiology over the last 20 months, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Getting data out there helps with that. So we, we everybody's had access to these dashboards now, whether it's a, a county or a, a local health department or the state's dashboard, CDC's dashboard, WHO's dashboard. Everybody can see those numerators and denominators and track trends for themselves. So we're making more epidemiologists, I think, through the pandemic. That's Sounds great. like a lot of lot of math statistics uh, tied into science. So I assume that uh, as a youngster, you were probably those were big uh, classes for you that you enjoyed. <laughs> you you nailed it. I loved uh, I loved math, and I think I ended up finishing college level calculus before I graduated high school, and uh, certainly liked science as well. I I jumped straight into organic chemistry and did a year of organic chemistry research um, really early in undergrad. And that was kind of a launching point for me. So I uh, figured out a career that could tie both those things together and, and through, through medicine actually. Um, and I think that's the most rewarding part for me is, is Epi is using medicine on a population level and, and tying data to interventions. That's very cool. So when you graduated high school and you were starting to kind of try to figure out what you wanted to do. You said you went into medicine first. Did you always know you wanted to be an epidemiologist or did that come later? No, I, I, I think I really stumbled onto that. So my, my path to epidemiology probably started in high school um, during one of the first international trips that I'd taken. So I'd, uh, I joined a, a missionary group in South Africa to help build an orphanage. I did a lot of construction in high school. And there I was sort of introduced to, to HIV and the huge impact HIV and AIDS were having on, on everybody. Um, so the orphanages that we were, we were building were specifically for uh, orphans whose parents had passed away from HIV AIDS. And although I was there for construction and helping just, just build this place, it was, uh, it was that eye-opening experience that, that, wow, this disease does so much harm to, to so many people that started me down the path uh, to medicine. And then I think I, I followed that path and ultimately um, did uh, internal medicine and, and always had an emphasis on infectious disease and, uh, uh, and global health. And eventually ended up learning global health is public health. Public health is global health, and, and epi is that sharp tooth, the, uh, the effector arm of public health. So it was a natural flow from that point on, I think. Yeah, we definitely want to talk into any adventures that you've had, because there anybody that does uh, epidemiology or public health typically has some international kind of uh, adventures to talk about. But so where did you grow up? And now that you're in Nebraska, I think we talked off air that you, you had you were in New York. So um, East Coast uh, guy uh, growing up or, or just spent some nope, time there? Midwesterner to the core. So I, I grew up in Adel, Iowa which is a little town just west of Des Moines. It's only like two and a half hours east of, east of us here in Lincoln. Uh, Midwesterner to the core. Went to Iowa State for undergrad and University of Iowa for med school. Um, still a Cyclone fan. So the, the med school didn't really have a football team, right? Because it's the med school. So, <laughs> so I remained a Cyclone through the time at University of Iowa there. But still, still root for the Hawkeyes when they're not playing the, 
the Cyclones. Still, I'm still getting converted. I've only been in Nebraska for the past couple of years, right? I'm still getting converted over to uh, uh, to be a Husker fan, but I'm I'm getting closer. Went from uh, University of Iowa in med school to uh, University of Rochester Medical Center for internal medicine residency in upstate New York, um, and absolutely loved it there. It was a beautiful place and a wonderful program. Um, learned more about medicine and, and global health and infectious disease there than I thought I ever would, but needed to get back closer to home. So my, my wife and I, uh, have a brand, have a baby girl who's less of a baby. Now she's, uh, uh, 18 months, I believe Amelia Maeve. And our goal was to get back closer to home so we could be near family, uh, with our new baby. And at that point in my career. I was, I was debating between going on and doing an infectious disease fellowship or doing more public health and epi and, and the public health epi side ended up winning out. I went to uh, CDC applied for and, and got into a program called the epidemic intelligence service. That program EIS for short is kind of the, uh, the formal training for applied epidemiology for putting it into use for making an intervention and seeing that intervention through um, and through EIS, I was able to be stationed in Nebraska, which got me really close to home. Um, and really, I'd, I'd grown up coming over here from Iowa uh, for the uh, Omaha Zoo and, and loved that. And thought, all right, Nebraska is pretty close. We'll try it out. Um, and it's become our home since then. Yeah, pretty cool. Since you talked about uh, football and everything else, I think one of the coolest things in sports as well as life is the, the thing at Iowa where they wave to the kids watching the football games uh, in between. I think it's the first and second quarter. That is just amazing. I mean, I, I, I just can't even say how cool that is. I thought that was really neat too. I, when they were finishing up that brand new children's hospital when I was still in med school there. So we got to go up and, and see how you can see the stadium. And that's something neat for the kids, I think. Yeah, that's a very cool thing. So I heard you have a history with tuberculosis as well. Well, a, a short history with tuberculosis, at least. So after that first time in South Africa, um, learning how important that was to me, I returned two separate times to the same place and ended up spending about five months in total um, in South Africa at this orphanage that we'd help build. I ended up doing rotations in an HIV clinic and, and started managing antiretrovirals um, and alongside a, a big part of HIV management is, is managing opportunistic infections. So I started seeing more and more TB in clinic in South Africa. And that ended up, uh, I ended up being able to rotate through a XDR TB clinic, um, with, which is extremely drug resistant TB with, uh, it requires a lot of work, uh, to manage and treat. Uh, that was, uh, that was a, a lot to have learned. And uh, it, it's how difficult it is to find regimens that treat in areas that uh, have less resources is, is very difficult. So that was my main TB experience, rotating through an XDR clinic in South Africa and seeing TB as an outpatient um, for patients who were uh, co-infected as an opportunistic infection. Was this a program that you had set up through um, your training program in internal medicine or something through the CDC that you did post or 
No, this was actually uh, before internal medicine. So I I rotated uh, through a hospital in South Africa that uh, whose leadership I just grew to meet and know through my time working on the orphanage there. So there was a direct connection and uh, luckily they, they invited me back a couple of times. I was able to go back through and, and really start learning directly from them, how HIV worked and how HIV management work, uh, went in South Africa. So that was, uh, most of my time in South Africa was, was before internal medicine. It was through, uh, uh, medical school actually. That's amazing. That's, that's really cool. Do you still have the connections with the, the facility today? Yeah, we haven't spoken in some time. I think it's been about, I don't know, 10 years even now since I've been there. Um, but I do, I do get communication and, and talk with the, uh, the orphanage group that's still there. Um, they're continuing to build and grow and, and help, and they're doing some really, really neat work. So still maintain that contact at least. Amazing. That just, that sounds terrific. Yeah, that's very cool was very thankful for that time and that experience. And that really helped push me to, to do what I'm doing now. So another big thing you mentioned in that, that uh, little story there was the EIS training. So um, we haven't had anybody on that has been through that training or talked about that training for, so for our audience, uh, we might find that very interesting to hear kind of what that is, how you get into it, uh, how long is the training, what are you prepared for when you get out, et cetera. Yeah, happy to. And love talking about EIS too. It's a great subject. EIS is a two-year program, uh, which takes, takes people from a variety of different fields. It's not all medical. So some of us are trained physicians. Some of us are nurse practitioners. Um, there's PhD epidemiologists that go into this program. There's even a handful of, of nurse practitioners and lawyers. So CDC started the EIS, the Epidemic Intelligence Service, to be uh, uh, the first on-site, boots on the ground, investigate, contain, intervene, and communicate group. And that, those are some of the core things that the EIS does. The program set up so that about half of the class, each class, is stationed in Atlanta at headquarters, and the other half are spread throughout the U.S. as field officers. So in my class, I think there were about 70 of us and, and maybe 30 or so of us were field officers stationed throughout the U.S. That's what brought me to Nebraska. So EIS takes a variety of people because each of these different professions can add something to epidemiology and public health. Um, and they really train us to be leaders in, in public health and to do exactly what I'm doing now, uh, state epidemiology or subject matter expertise at Atlanta at headquarters. So we have... Uh, uh, a handful of, we have a bunch of time in Atlanta, even as a field officer at headquarters. Um, we go through two months of pretty intense training at the beginning of the program, everything from donning and doffing PPE, uh, to running a quick and dirty case control study to interpreting odds ratios and relative risk to engaging stakeholders and communicating interventions. And then we deploy out to our field sites, um, and then every now and then we, uh, through, through different fall and spring courses and conferences, meet back up in Atlanta. Throughout EIS, there's opportunity to deploy for EPI-AIDS. Um, a jurisdiction might call on CDC for help. You might hear about a, a flu in Michigan right now. They ask for an EPI-AIDS, so CDC deploys individuals uh, to go help in Michigan. How is flu moving across the student body there on campus? And what can we do to help stop it? 
Um, it'll probably include everything from, from vaccination to individual focused interventions. And then after they put those in place, they track to see if their intervention was successful or, or not. Um, and if it is successful or not, then they communicate those findings. So the, the program allows for not just domestic deployments, but also for international deployments. Um, and I, I had my hands full here in Nebraska from outbreak to outbreak, but was able to do an international deployment through CDC as well. Where did you go for that? So the, uh, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to go just because there was so much interesting things going on here in Nebraska. When I, when I first hit uh, Nebraska through EIS in, I think, summer of, of 2019, we had a mumps outbreak. We had a, a, an invasive mosquito, Aedes aegypti, which was first detected here and had to put together a big eradication campaign for that. We had E-Valley which I got to work with lots of uh, our infection preventionists across the state and, and tracking and investigating. Um, finally, we got a little bit of a pause. And then in late fall, I deployed to Ghana to work on AFP and polio. Uh, I was in Ghana for about two and a half months and, and it was just toward the end of December, we were starting to hear about the beginnings of SARS-CoV-2. Um, came back home to Nebraska and was actually redeployed quickly from there out to California uh, to work at LAX to develop screening and to uh, then to investigate the third case of COVID in the U.S. So this was a, a fast track time and it hasn't slowed down yet. Um, <laughs> Ghana was, uh, was a, a wonderful experience in working with Ghana Health Services um, in WHO with uh, all of the different groups and players who were there to help for polio, which was making a bit of a return in Ghana. That's very cool. And now yeah. you're here. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> from Ghana working on polio to COVID in California, back to Nebraska. And then I haven't, I haven't left since then because uh, COVID-19 in Nebraska has certainly kept me busy. Yeah. You must've got back to the U S just in time before everything kind of shut down. Yep. I think I, I got back to the U S just in time to, uh, unpack and then, uh, and then pack again to head out to California. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, um, are aware of public health and, and obviously there's a lot of benefits to public health, uh, but I think most of it happens behind the scenes. Um, you guys get reports uh, from labs when things are diagnosed or whatever. And, and so you see a lot of things like influenza numbers, like you talked about numerators and denominators. But then you look for other things that you pick up, like, uh, for example, the cases of paragonomyosis in Missouri, you know, almost a decade ago now. It's, um, so there's a list of reportable diseases. And how does that all flow into um, public health? And how do you guys kind of look at that and interpret those things when you see them? So the, the, what we're talking about now is, is surveillance systems for diseases of public health priority. Um, and every, uh, most of what we do in EPI starts out with a surveillance system and having a surveillance system that can uh, detect and report one of these communicable diseases. So how this process begins most of the time is, is through a lab report. We've relied on lab reports as our, our core surveillance system uh, in epidemiology for, for 
decades now. A lab report of one of these um, of one of these diseases of public health priority flips positive, and then that's automatically in most situations sent to the state through electronic lab reporting. What we'll do then is watch these trends over time and who is being infected and where they're being infected. And then most of the time, an epidemiologist is able to pick up on a trend or see something unusual that sparks an investigation. And then the rest of it is response mode. So after there's a trend, say, we might detect a cluster of positive mumps labs. We might see that there's an abnormally high amount of positive mumps labs from a certain region in the state. The next step then is identifying key stakeholders. So who's the local health department in that region? Who are some of the hospitals? What are they seeing? Does this seem like a trend to them? Can we make sure that we're catching these and make sure there aren't holes in that surveillance system as this unfolds? And then can we put together a plan and implement an intervention? We had, a, uh, I mentioned one of our first, one of the first outbreaks I had in Nebraska was a mumps outbreak and that was in uh, Northeast Nebraska. Um, there, our intervention was a third MMR vaccine campaign. We put together a third MMR vaccine campaign for a town that was, uh, that was seeing a lot, of, a lot of mumps cases. I think more than a hundred mumps cases in this town. Um, and then we tracked cases after the campaign and showed that the third MMR vaccine campaign helped shut down uh, new cases of mumps in this community. And the, the work still isn't over at that point. So we, you need to get that word out that third MMR vaccines can help. And that's where publication scientific communications come into this. So it all, it all starts with a lab report. Um, and that's what we've been very reliant on the last several years. So now we're looking at how can we bring new sources of data, new inputs into public health surveillance systems. Um, and I think the, the very next step is going to be case reporting, electronic case reporting. There are lots of things out there that a lab test might not get you. There are things that uh, maybe a lab test should get you, but aren't. Hospitalization surveillance and electronic case reporting is going to be the next input to this system. And this is something we're building out now. So syndromic surveillance it is kind of a, uh, the precursor to electronic case reporting. Syndromic surveillance is, is this other big input into public health surveillance systems that looks at constellations of signs or symptoms. And a, a big relevant one right now is ILI influenza-like illness. So providers might not always test for influenza, right? If it's influenza season, and if it looks and smells and sounds like influenza, it's probably influenza. That would, that means that that person doesn't get a test, not in every situation. And that can be very appropriate for the patient. So they're going to be given directions to do uh, what they should do, go home and, and isolate. Uh, call if you have this or that uh, symptom or things are getting worse, but they might not need a test. So syndromic surveillance can pull together just signs or symptoms like fever, uh, cough, chest pain, runny nose, other parts of respiratory illness. And that can serve as a flag or an early warning system, even without a lab report. That was a bit of a long-winded long answer, but. No, that's a great answer. I mean, and I think it's so cool. So, I mean, 
So you're, it sounds like you're kind of in the process of evolving from a more manual process to a more automated process that should help you touch onto more things and look into more things, correct? Yeah, the uh, automating surveillance systems have been, it is a top priority in public health and epidemiology. I got to give uh, um, a big shout out to our previous state epidemiologist, who's a, a friend and a mentor, someone who I continue learning from, Dr. Tom Safranek. He, uh, he was he and, and, and the team were largely responsible for building automated electronic lab reporting in Nebraska. And over his career, he was able to do that very successfully here. Um, automating electronic case reporting is going to be one of our next big steps. Very cool. On, so, a, on, on that note, I don't know, cut, cut me off, change, change topics if you want. There, there is a lot of this pandemic, um, we've been we, we've spent building more and more data systems to help automate this huge amount of COVID data that's come in, right? And that's probably been one of the most challenging things in, in Epi throughout the pandemic has been building new systems that can incorporate all the extra information we're getting with COVID. So while electronic lab reporting has been here for a while and it works really, really well, especially in Nebraska, um, we haven't had a system for genomic information how do we move genomic information on thousands of Nebraskans across the state and use that to uh, affect some sort of change or intervention? That's been a huge amount of work that's gone into that uh, and building a system that can do that here. We, we've had no single system that can take care of a lot of this stuff. How do we find vaccine breakthroughs? And how do we look for and investigate vaccine breakthroughs in Nebraska? We have an immunization system. We have a lab system but making them talk together has spent, ha, has required a lot of time throughout the pandemic. So I think this is something we're learning moving forward. And you, you all hear more and more about data modernization and how uh, there's, there's funding for data modernization from a federal level. CDC is looking at this. States are looking at how to do this too, so that we spend less time building systems and more time analyzing and communicating that information. Very awesome. Yeah. Little bonus. <laughs> so I am curious with COVID um, on such a large scale, that data set that you're getting in every day from all of those lab tests is quite a bit bigger than any other sort of lab monitoring you've done in the past, right? Yeah, certainly. It's, it's a huge amount of data and it's required our team uh, uh, be very creative in, in how they spend their time. We have a uh, uh, in Epi and public health, we have all of our normal day-to-day -day responsibilities, and we also have COVID blasted in on top of it. So we've been able to expand a little bit, but we've had to be very smart about uh, which analyses we can dig into because we simply don't have uh, the time or bandwidth or resources to do every single thing that we want. That makes sense. It sounds like with your position as well, you have to have a pretty good understanding of what a lab can do for you. What, what can they offer you? So do you have, as part of your training in EIS, do you get into the training of, you know, like, well, you can sequence this, you can do this to this in terms of trying to figure out, are these cases connected? Because at the end of the day, that's what you want to know, right? Are these cases true, but unrelated, or are they actually somehow connected? Yeah, I, th this is part of the training at EIS. Um, and, and part of those first two months of, of on-site in Atlanta training, we get into all of these specifics, all of these epi and medical specifics that, that you know, we hear about through med school and then again in residency. And then we, 
we hit a lot of these again in, in EIS. Um, I'd always learned about sensitivity and specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, what tests could tell you what they meant in different situations based on pretest probability. And then EIS shows you how to do those studies yourself. And, and luckily was able to do some of that throughout the state. So I, in a fall of, oh, when was it now? Fall of 2020, probably late summer, early fall, antigen tests hit the market, right? And this is probably the best example of doing this in real time. It's like, we know a bit about antigen tests from, from other, uh, from other diseases. There's influenza antigen tests and influenza PCR tests. Uh, but we didn't know exactly what these would look like for COVID. So I could take the sensitivity and specificity of a test and, and interpret that and run with it, make a clinical decision based off it. But what I learned I needed to do now was as these antigen tests were, were flooding the market, becoming more and more common in Nebraska, and as the state was getting some to determine how to use, what we were able to do uh, with the help of some local health departments and NPHL is set up some rapid uh, challenge studies with antigen tests against our PCR tests. And, and we saw that they were, were frequently less sensitive, but were very specific. So we might be getting false negatives in certain populations, but a positive we could usually trust. What we then learned was the groups of people who you were most likely uh, to get a false negative in was those who are asymptomatically infected. By building those studies and learning that firsthand with a new antigen test as it arrived, we were able to build statewide guidance on where we could use those antigen tests um, and who could see the biggest benefit from them. And I think we're still using some of that today. It's still recommended uh, for, for antigen tests that they do the best when they're used on a symptomatic, freshly infected person. You're less likely to get a, a false negative that way. I think that's a big part as we're screening more and more asymptomatic people to, you know, that information there is key because we've only done PCRs whenever we've tested asymptomatic people because of data like that, which makes sense, right? Exactly. Um, really, antigen tests have a huge role. That role, I think, is best served when they're used on symptomatic people or when they're used in people doing screening testing, but they're able to do more than one test. Serial testing is a way to overcome that diminished sensitivity for antigen testing. Um, I think we're, we did pretty good in looking at Binax now early and then putting those tests throughout the state in places that could prioritize testing symptomatic people to get them that result really quick and in serial testing, such as in nursing facilities. Yeah, obviously that made a huge difference because you can't wait. I mean, PCR takes a day or two to come back and it's a, a lot more... Um, yeah, just uh, labor intensive in terms of having to get something to a lab somewhere that has the technology that can do the PCR as opposed to a point of care antigen test where you can do it repeatedly, on, especially on symptomatic people. So that, that certainly changed the course, I think, of our long-term care outbreak once uh, that was all available for everybody. So you could rapidly isolate people who were positive, et cetera. Because of, because of those findings and those early challenge studies that we did, um, we, we were able to prioritize putting antigen tests at nursing facilities throughout the pandemic. Um, and that remains a focus of support even now. Yeah, I know uh, the ICAP team has been very grateful for all of that support and 
guidance that you guys have offered up as we work with those facilities. Very happy to. ICAP's been a been a wonderful partner throughout this whole thing, and this is this has been really really hard, right? This has been I I thought I would never work more hours than I did in residency, um, and, and it's like oh my gosh now I'm in public health and as soon as I get into public health that big at Nebraska there's a pandemic, it, it's been really hard but working with awesome people is what makes it very doable. And ICAP has been a big part of that. So we've got, we're lucky. We got a lot of excellent people here at the state and at local health departments and then other partners like ICAP and UNMC. So thankful to have you all. Thank you for the kind words. We appreciate it. So if we had listeners out there that were maybe in the beginning of their career path, getting into medicine and they were thinking about epidemiology, what, advice would you have for them? Well, first and foremost, I'd probably, I'd probably ask them to keep an open mind. So I, uh, I very much thought um, that I would go into emergency medicine or, or do something much more action oriented like that. And I had a lot of good advisors that, that told me to keep an open mind and I think by keeping an open mind, uh, I was able to pick up on this interest and in making data-driven interventions on a population level, which I would then was able to pursue. So keep an open mind and allow yourself to pick up on something that really interests you. When you find that, run with it. If you love it, you're going to do your job a lot better. That's great advice. And I guess, I guess one other piece of advice is even... Uh, so, so all of my medical and public health colleagues, one thing I've had to learn is to take time for my family. Um, and I'm, I'm very thankful that I learned that and started doing that when I did. So, so in addition to finding whatever it is that's out there, don't forget to take time for your family. Great advice. I think it's really cool the story that you had about the diversity of training opportunities of people going into EIS because, I mean, traditionally, I thought that most of the people that had an interest in this and the CDC were infectious disease trained already or planning on infectious disease training. So that's really cool that it's uh, open to pretty much anybody and, and that they actually view that as an advantage. So I would say no matter what people are in, if this is something that you're interested in, you could always apply, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it, it's an amazing, amazing, really neat program. Um, and you won't be the same leaving it as when you, when you go into it. So let's switch gears a little bit. Are you reading or binge watching anything right now? I just started a book, um, and I'm, I'm horrible about this, but also it's, I think it's, it's helped me a lot too. I love reading like content related nonfiction, right? So it's like, I, I swear I have only been helpful throughout this whole thing because I, uh, of EIS training of global health, public health training, but also because of all of the random infectious disease and epi books that, that I've read. Um, I'm reading one right now by Scott Gottlieb, who's a former FDA commissioner, um, who, who's been, a, I think, a strong voice throughout the pandemic. Um, it's kind of his reflections of everything that's happened so far. 
Um, and I, I've been lucky to have seen the pandemic through a couple different lenses. So I, I guess we were changing the subject, but now we're back on COVID-19 again. I guess okay. I'm still just reading about, about COVID-19. But, um, I've been able to see the pandemic through, through a national CDC lens, through EIS, through a Nebraska-specific lens, and through a local lens, and going out working with our local health departments. And um, I've certainly got more of the local and Nebraska-specific perspective than the national because I've been here through most of the time since it's kicked off. So I, I, uh, I can't remember what this book's called. I'm, I'm, I don't know about a quarter of the way through the audiobook right now. Uh, but uncontrolled spread, something like this by Scott Gottlieb. It's got a lot of nice, fresh federal perspective, and it's got a lot more detail, um, about the beginning of the pandemic where I'm at in the book right now, uh, that, that I didn't see cause I was so busy on site in, uh, in California working on that third case. So a lot was happening at the same time. And it's helpful for me to go back and see some of that. Cool. Watching, How much in, go, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, shoot. I don't know watching. I don't know which. I don't think I'm on any current show. Is there anything even good out right now? Uh, there's, <laughs> there's quite a bit to stream if you're, you're, if you're into streaming. It just kind of depends on what you like. Yeah, I think I think we have all the all the streaming apps. I just don't think we've seen anything good recently. <laughs> well, with an eighteen month old, I imagine you're busy at work and busy at home. Yeah, she's she's pretty busy, wonderful <laughs> and busy at the same time. Yep, um, that's the way it goes at that age. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm learning that. Another question for you, as far as public health goes, how much involved do you get with like water or air quality or anything like that, or is that completely different people from your role? Well, we, we've got water quality and safety is a completely different uh, division uh, of government. It's under NDEE, Nebraska Department of uh, Environment and Energy, rather than DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services. Um, but we intersect a lot there. At air quality, I haven't been in as much at all since I've been here. Um, and I'm not, I'm not quite sure where air quality fits but water I'm, I'm very familiar with from working with that whole water team at ndee on different outbreaks uh, they've really been excellent to work with and a, a partner throughout all this and, and real experts too we've uh, worked on a campylobacteriosis outbreak recently which was a i think a perfect example of, of like pump pump handle epidemiology i i didn't uh, uh tell the pump handle story in the beginning but i feel like no one should talk about epidemiology without talking about the, the pump handle, right? So this was the most straightforward example of epi. Then I'll get back to, the, to, to what you asked, but removing the pump handle, there was a guy named Jon Snow, um, not the one from Game of Thrones. This one was around in the 1850s. And, and he's regarded as like a father of, of modern epidemiology, right? So he identified this association of cholera illnesses with drinking water out of one well. Trend, right? Numerator and denominator trend. And then he removed the pump handle from that well, and that essentially stopped the outbreak. So that for, from there in what the 1850s, I think it was 1854 when that happened somewhere in there from there all the way to today, we're doing a similar thing in Epi. So it might not be removing a pump handle, but it might be chlorinating water. We had a, a large outbreak of campylobacteriosis. Um, we did a door to door survey to identify risk factors noticed a trend, made an odds ratio, found that people who drank tap water were 15 times more likely to develop illness in this area 
than people who didn't drink tap water. So that's a pretty, pretty big odds ratio. And that was a very, it was a statistically significant finding. So then we put out an intervention, chlorinated water, checked cultures that we'd taken just beforehand um, and showed that campy DNA was in the water and that chlorination had killed all the live bacteria. So from, from pump handle to chlorination, one intervention or another, uh, yes, still work with water very closely. That's Air awesome. quality, I still got to learn. <laughs> so then with, with cases like that, where you have, you know, this outbreak and you have to, you know, engineer an intervention to fix it, right? Um, did you have any like short-term interventions? Because I'm sure being able to culture the water and get chlorination in place, that all takes a lot of time. So was there like a, a boil order in place or something like that for that community? So out of an abundance of caution, as we were collecting data, uh, chlorination started as soon as we had a sense that it could be water, even before we had that whole odds ratio of 15. So to be on the safe side started as soon as we started collecting surveys and seeing even before there's something statistically significant that this might have something to do with water. That's when chlorination started. Then once you get that big of an odds ratio, pause chlorination, do a boil water advisory to say, all right, you must boil this water to drink it, but we need to see if we can culture anything live out of it. So the intervention begins even before, uh, for, uh, for us in this outbreak, at least, even before we had that final answer. Okay. And thankful for our friends at NDEE who were able to put together such a strong, solid intervention as early as they did. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. your your role is cool. You get to you know take care of in essence uh, you know a whole state or region, uh, sometimes even more than that. when you're working with your colleagues, but do you um, ever miss as a provider that person to person interaction that you have? Does that is that something that was was difficult to give up? Because obviously you have a connection with the person that you're taking care of that's that's different than public health. I I miss that incredibly. I can't tell you how much I miss that. And I'm gonna say, I, I haven't given it up. It's just been a pause. So I, I'm planning on being able to see patients again. So I'm, I'm internal medicine board certified and licensed. And uh, that, that will be part of my career here at the state is a combination of, of public health and seeing patients probably in an outpatient setting. Um, the pandemic just hasn't let me get back to that yet. Each time I think, all right, I'm getting a little bit of a breather. I'm gonna go sneak in and figure out this outpatient thing. Uh, it, the pandemic's pulled me back. So I need to make sure that happens sooner rather than later, but I've, I've not given it up at all. I miss it a lot. And I'm really looking forward to incorporating that into my work here. I think public health practitioners and state epidemiologists might be sharpest when they're still connected to patient populations. Um, that's something I really learned through internal medicine in upstate New York is that connection's valuable and that makes you sharper in public health. So I've, I intend on getting that back and staying sharp through that patient interaction. Just haven't been able to yet. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you need to look for a place to do in Omaha, just let us know. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I'm obviously can't hire anybody, but I can put in a good word. <laughs> well, Dr. Starlin starting a side business. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, anything that we didn't kind of get through or two or anything that you, you think uh, uh, would be good for people to, to hear? 
You know, if, if we're getting close to the end, I guess what I'd say some of what's most rewarding for me has been situations like, like camping and being able to chlorinate the water. This is an intervention based off a rapid community survey and going from community survey to intervention is what's so rewarding with this. Another really rewarding part is the analysis and the communication. So I'm, I work day day in and day out on, on vaccination information now, right? We have this huge, powerful tool, COVID-19 vaccination. Um, and, and one other piece that's been very, very uh, uh, exciting for me is when I'm able to show how well those vaccines work um, in another light that I think might help convince people to use this huge intervention, our, the, the sharpest tool that we have in this uh, fight against the pandemic. So, you know, I, I get burnt out every now and then with vaccine hesitancy. Like, how do you, how do you really express to people how well this works in some way that really connects with them? And when I'm able to do a new analysis or find a new way of looking at that data, um, that gets me excited and, and keeps me hopeful, I think, that we can still make a dent in this and increase our vaccination numbers and uh, get more Nebraskans protected. That's probably the most important thing I'm working on right now is showing how well vaccines work and doing that in a way that's digestible and understandable by the general population. So we're, uh, we've had some successes there. Vaccinated people are 10 times less likely to be hospitalized than unvaccinated people. Probably heard me saying that on the 9am calls. Um, that was a really neat analysis looking at incident rate ratios. It's hard to communicate vaccine efficacy, right? Vaccine effectiveness. Like, what is this number? 90%. What does that mean for me? It's like, well, how about 10 times less likely to end up in the hospital? That I think is simpler. So that was a little win. And now with, with, that's our primary series, right? With boosters, that makes it even better. About half of the vaccine breakthrough hospitalizations would have been eligible for a booster. So that's about, you know, vaccines working to keep people out of the hospital 10 times. The rate is 10 times lower if you're vaccinated. Vaccine breakthroughs still do happen though, right? Because no vaccine is perfect. Of those that happen, maybe half of them could have been prevented with a booster. And I think that's worth getting out there too. So I'm working on that. That gets me excited. You know, we're working on our data for that very same thing too in, in, in our colleagues. So uh, it, it's interesting uh, stuff to certainly look at. And when I know when I look through our dashboard every day that the vast majority of our colleagues that are having breakthroughs have not received that booster yet. So it's unfortunate uh, uh, that, you know, it, especially when we find out, which I suspect we will, that we could have prevented a large number of those with that third shot. I think it's Absolutely. really eye-opening too. You know, all of all of our hospital systems are still overwhelmed, and they're still working overtime to be able to treat our patients. But can you imagine how bad off we would be if we had ten times the amount of COVID patients because we didn't have the vaccine? Nope, don't want be, to imagine that. <laughs> be awful, wouldn't it? I mean, it's still awful, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any questions for us that you can uh, think of or would or, would like to ask? Anything? No, nothing required. Just uh, we picked on you for almost an hour, so we figured you'd have a chance to pick on us. Sarah loves answering questions. I usually defer to her. <laughs> uh, guys, I, I don't think I have anything to pick on you all about. I just appreciate being on and um, 
if uh, there's ever an opportunity to come back, would love to dig into an outbreak and maybe even go through a specific example. Um, can talk about polio in, in Ghana or 80s Egypti, identification and response here in the state, mumps, third MMR vaccine campaigns or other pub handle type stories. So um, there's a lot of neat topics in, in EPE. And that's certainly why I'm still here and still putting up with things after two years of pandemic. So I, I don't know. I, I would love to know who else you've had on and uh, who, who might be coming next. Who's going who's gonna to be the uh, next one on? Ooh, sneak peeks. Let me pull this up Can you really do quick. sneak peeks? I'm okay with sneak peek. Are you, Rick? Yeah, definitely. I think okay. we've had 21 regular episodes now and a, a few special episodes. Um, so it's uh, it's been going well. Yeah. Let's see here. I think Dr. Van might be coming up here soon. Yep. Dr. Van is our next guest. And then after that, we don't have anyone scheduled. So we need to find more people. Yes. Yeah. So please, if you want to come on and uh, talk about some things, we'd love to have you. And we'll definitely have you back again, Matt. There's lots of things to talk about, as you said. And so we could uh, we could do lots of things with the show. So I think we'll, we'll definitely do that. Well, it sounds really good. And there's plenty of rock stars here at the state who um, I'm sure would appreciate the opportunity to to be on with you all. Send us some keep, names. Keep me on the list. Will do. Well. Thank you. All right. And for our listeners out there, don't forget to catch us for the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.